Um, so this weekend I played this really new, you know, hot take on this um, Euro game. It was really heavyweight and uh, I was pushing so many cubes and there was so much worker placement and I got so many points throughout all the different point salad things. So like, you know, these victor conditions, those victor conditions, all of the points. It was, it burnt my brain quite a bit, but it was so satisfying. Uh-huh. So I, I recognize a lot of those words individually, but I'm going to need like a, like a dictionary to know what they mean all together. Can I, is there like an urban dictionary for board games? Do we have that? If you don't know what those words mean, why are you here playing board games and talking about them? Hello and welcome to Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. I'm Greg B. Joining me today is Jacob. Hello. And we are going to be talking about some of the uh, popular terms that are used to describe board games. This is likely to be part of a series. Mm -hmm. Um, We're going to be going through some of the terms that you find as like categories on Board Game Geek versus mechanics and kind of just breaking down what means what and really trying to make it digestible. Exactly. Exactly. But first, what have we been playing lately, Jacob? Well, we just uh, got finished playing a game that we're both really jazzed about, and it's taken me so long to get it to table, but <laughs> uh, I've been told by many people, and finally our friend Mino said, bring this to table, God damn it, it's a good game. Yep, in so, so many did. words. Yeah. We played Root. We played Root. Um, yeah, so Root is an asymmetrical strategy game from the makers of Vast the Crystal Cavern. Yep. Um, you play as one of four, or if you have the expansion, six, mm-hmm. um, factions that are sort of fighting for control of these woods. Two more have actually already been kickstarted, so there's going to oh, be damn. a full eight. Do they? Okay, I'm actually curious. Is there going to be a larger board? Because that would get real crazy. Well, I think I, I don't think that you can play. I, I think the game is just caps at four players. Oh, it's just okay. that you have more to choose more from. More variety. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. all right, that makes sense. Um, but yeah, so basically each of those um, factions has different not even variable player power we've moved into completely asymmetrical gameplay with this so taking a lot of the lessons that they learned from vast Mm -hmm. and bringing them into more of a high level strategic space yeah and i think that they did a really good job they really simplified a lot of it where it's just like i think uh, the fact that victory conditions here are pretty much the same in in terms of like you win when you someone gets to 30 points or when someone completes the scenario on the, their chosen dominance card. Right, which can only be performed during the game. Like you yeah. claim a dominance card in the course of gameplay. Mm-hmm. So, so if one of them comes out, you, you can claim it. If it doesn't come out, if you're like playing towards one of them and it never comes out, well, it sucks. Right. And so, you know, what this means basically is that you don't have to worry about learning what other players want to do, what they're striving towards, because mm-hmm. that's universal. You just need to learn how they work. Exactly. Like, how do they get points? So, for example, I played the Woodland Alliance, which is the um, pretty much the rebel group, the gorillas, uh, in the in this woodland uh, of like all cutthroat the cutthroat mice. Yeah, the, the the really little cutthroat mice that are just scrambling all over the place and like holding people hostage and getting support from everyone. And I get victory points through gaining support. And honestly, that's pretty much my victory point mechanic. 
gain support and or build the uh, certain items because items also can give you victory points. Right. And that's it. So like if you want to fuck me up, you want to prevent me from building support. Right. Meanwhile, I was playing the eerie. Is it dynasty kingdom? Dynasty, I think. The eerie dynasty. uh, And my victory condition was that I wanted to get buildings out and maintain them out. So Mm -hmm. I basically wanted to control territory. But I had a whole series of mechanics that were making it very difficult for me to do that. Yeah. It was getting progressively harder until the point where I was just going to be completely unable to do anything, at which point I would demolish my infrastructure and reset. Yep. So sort of a an ebb and flow mm-hmm. that accompanied that, which was vastly different than something that I would probably still describe as an ebb and flow for the mm-hmm. Woodland Alliance in terms of getting warriors onto the field and then taking them off in order to turn them into officers or to create support. Yeah. But a very different type of ebb and flow. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and I think, and then the third player that we had was playing as uh, the Marquis. And uh, he just had a bunch of just military powers. And he got victory points by building his infrastructure. So he also did buildings, but in a different way where his was based on wood and not really the maintenance of them. It was just putting them out, putting them out, putting them out, putting them out. And so that's what he was trying to do. Um, and we got into some really interesting situations because uh, you had grabbed a dominance card very close to the, like, I'd say three or four turns in, mm-hmm. uh, that you were literally right there to take. Yeah. And then we pretty much spent the majority of the rest of the game preventing you from getting that dominance card. Yeah. I think it did sort of fall into a trap. So for context, uh, the default way to win, you just get to 30 points. Yep. First player to get to 30 points wins immediately. Mm-hmm. The dominance cards are the alternate victory conditions. There are four of them. And each of them says that you need to control a certain number of a certain type of clearings. Yeah. Which is sort of like the, the provinces or territories yeah. in the game. And so you claim those during your turn. And then if you meet the conditions it triggers at the start of your turn. So basically, yeah. even though I had claimed it and met the conditions, Jacob and, and our friend Harrison had one turn that they could disrupt me. Yeah. And they did successfully. But then the next, like, I guess probably like four or five turns like were just completely dominated by me trying to recover, usually succeeding enough to get into a position where I would win. Yeah. And then them disrupting me. So it mm-hmm. felt a little bit like the sort of... uh drawing aggro problem that we run into with a game like uh munchkin yeah well the thing was that also like um uh, there was a lot of that aggro drawn on you but as i was combating you i was getting points and and like harrison i think was didn't really get that many points through through and beating you um and then that really drew it off of you at the end like you know by closer to the end like you know you guys saw that i was getting really close to to winning the game and focused more on me and that's when harrison started giving you cards from the ability that he had and other things like that so similar to i think a lot of the coin games this is one of those things that like you know you will have fluctuating alliances oh absolutely definitely shifting alliances like at first i was working with harrison to just like you know let's make sure that greg doesn't get this like one goal and then after that it was like all right well i still don't want him to get that but also now i'm gonna win now i'm working on it yeah Yeah. you like your ability to extract resources from us as we move through territory not even that you control Mm -hmm. because you never really controlled that much territory 
but where you simply have support yeah. was just a devastating mechanic for us because every time we would try to get somewhere to respond to something you were doing, we would have to give you the ability to do more stuff after we dealt mm -hmm. with you. Um, I think moving forward, I have identified a solution to that, which is just smash your bases. Yeah. Um, but that also comes with its own risks because then as soon as you smash my bases, I then get to uh, do the revolt actions, which I only did a few times, but they pretty much remove all of the pieces on right. that space. Right. Revolts themselves can be very dangerous, but... Yeah, it's it's definitely a double-edged sword dealing with this mm -hmm. sort of insurgency. It definitely, definitely, it, the removing my bases is probably the most effective way of combating the mechanics that, that I use, I think. Just because even like getting rid of support is honestly just plays into my hands. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, whenever you move into a province that has my support or uh, whenever you destroy one of my support, you have to give me... A card and if you don't have a card of that type i just draw a random one from the top and put right. it into my like supporters and then like but if you destroy one of my bases which also i also get to choose so if i you know depending on how it is and plus i'm really defensive so if like i actually right. decide to defend my bases that's a different story yeah my like my saving grace and i was able to disrupt you slightly was simply because i was able to get in where you were undefended yeah um which because of your relatively few troops mm -hmm. happens a lot yeah but Obviously, you can recover much more swiftly. You've got less um, organizational bloat. But you're just more responsive. Yeah. Like, you can get places and build up and then withdraw mm. way faster than I could have hoped to. Exactly. Exactly. And then, like, it's interesting because I am limited into, in how exactly I can get the points. Uh, there are really only two ways that I can even put support on the field. Right. But, you know, with that... It, like I think the movement rules really also can work in, in like against me quite a bit. True, true. So. Because of yeah, I I do kind of wonder how much that would have disrupted the early game. Because mm -hmm. uh, as has become common for us, we did uh, mess up a rule related to movement and uh, control of territories. Mm -hmm. But I really enjoyed the game. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to getting back to it. Yep. I'm I'm torn because part of me wants to play the Eerie again and mm -hmm. just get really good with them. Yeah. And then part of me wants to see what the other, you know, I want to see what the Woodland Alliance yeah, is all yeah. about. So uh, I also want to see what the expansion ones are. Oh, yeah. Are I definitely want to see the yeah. expansion ones. So, but uh, definitely be on the lookout for us to bring you some more stories about playing Root. And who knows, maybe a stream or two. Yeah. I, I think this would be a really, really fun stream game. For sure. For sure. Cool. Uh, I had a really busy weekend. I wasn't able to play anything else. You also had a busy weekend, but you had a tiny game with you yes, that I you did. got to play. Uh, I got to play Hue, which is one of the gum pack, like, pack o games. So mm -hmm. it's like, it's a game pretty much in a container the size of a gum pack. As advertised. And it's interesting. It's pretty much like a game where you are trying to match colors in a certain way. So it's like you have um, these cards that either have uh, three colors in terms of like, you know, uh, the uh, top square, middle square, bottom square. Or three colors in terms of like three lines through the entire thing. And you have to like line them up with what's currently being placed down. And the way that you score is whatever's your last card, uh, you have, you know, three colors in there. So uh, the top and the bottom squares are worth one times the number of contiguous squares of that color in the largest area. And the one in the middle is worth double. Hmm. So... In general, pretty simple. Like, you know, you have you only have like six cards to start out with, and you're just placing them trying to make sure to get like whichever one you're keeping to be the highest scoring one. Right. 
Uh, and then when you do that, you, you know, add everything up at the very end, uh, you have that one card left. It has some additional mechanics where like you can, um, you have uh, one card that's a poison card, which has the color in the middle. Uh, if you make that contiguous to, you know, the largest area of that color, it's worth zero points. Oof. So, you know, that, that can really screw someone over if you have the right one that you see that they're building towards, but you might also just not have the right one in the middle. Right. So. Otherwise, it's it's a it's a pretty interesting game. I can't say it's one of my favorites, but uh, it doesn't have to be. It's decent enough, especially for a game that's in such a small package. You know, easy to just toss into um, your pocket, your backpack, anything like that. Though it does uh, take up a bit of space. So oh, once um, it actually like is set up, yeah, just because like you, you, it is a spatial game, so you are like putting things in different places and that kind of stuff, uh, and you're like building this thing that like you know it goes up to maybe like a foot by a foot, but like you know it's still a little bit of space. That's that some you space. Need. I mean, that's more than like an airplane. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, so I wouldn't probably recommend it for that. Uh, it's a good travel size, but as long as you have a table to pretty much play it on. Right. Well, there you go. That's what we've been playing lately. So today we're going to embark on a series of four different parts of talking about how we talk about board games, both as people who are part of the board game industry and also just defining what certain terms that are used very commonly to describe board games mean. So today we're going to talk about Euro games, but we've also got games that are called party or social games that we're going to talk about, uh, war games or Amerithrash games, as well as games that don't fit into any of these categories. Now let's talk a little bit about, well, Euro games and what we consider to be Euro games and honestly why we don't want to use the word anymore. Yeah, we sort of <laughs> talked ourselves out of it. I mean, Euro has always been a pretty fraught term. Yeah. I think uh, lots of inconsistencies about how it's defined, lots of uh, sort of miscommunications about what it is or isn't. So this is basically our attempt to suss out what we think that means yeah and i think that a little bit of context could be interesting here where um i think euro in general came from like german style board games yeah which is the kind of board games that really emerged in germany after world war ii which focused a lot less on conflict and a lot more on victory points and other things like that which translates a lot into what our thoughts on euros are it also started moving away from player elimination uh, so it's, I think these things are like the history of why people use the term Euro game, but it really has evolved a lot since then. So it's right now a very, very nebulous term. So we've been, it took us a while to actually try to figure out like what we would consider Euro and what the games that we've seen discussed as Euro games have in common. Right. And I think that's actually a really important observation. It's not one that I had thought of before, but this idea that Euro is sort of a legacy term mm -hmm. that has continued to be in use in a much more saturated and much different board gaming environment in the 21st century. So, yeah. But it is still a pretty popular term. So mm -hmm. there's definitely still value in trying to suss out what a Euro is, what it looks like, what it plays like. All right. So I think the first thing we talk about is the uh, things that we think that every Euro that we could think of has. There are three mechanics or three like general ideas uh, that are present in any Euro that we could think of. Yep. So the first one of those is the action economy. 
And with action economy, that just means that you have a limited number of actions that you can do each turn. You can't do everything you want to do, pretty much. Yeah. And you have to select what is more important for you, what is less important, what can you do, what uh, all that kind of stuff. And that, I think, is one of the core aspects of your games where like this economy, this like scarcity of actions almost really pushes you to have to think about like, you know, what are your priorities? What do you want to get to done in the game? And this is a lot of times uh, said in a different way as well. Mm-hmm. This can be said by something like worker placement, action selection. Uh, these are all different ways of describing this kind of concept. Um, that are almost more specific because I mean worker placement you have workers and you place them on actions but you only have so many workers giving you that scarcity Uh, action selection again it's the same similar kind of thing you can only select two three something like that actions in a turn out of a certain number and therefore you have that scarcity of things that you can do right uh in sort of a more unconventional expression of action economy you might see something like hand management so Mm -hmm. in a game like terraforming mars you've got actions that are limited per turn you can only play up to two actions per turn but those aren't on a communal board they're not represented by you placing a worker in anywhere they're actually coming from your hand so when you look at the surface level of them they can seem to be very different but if you really drill down in it what's getting back to is this idea of an action economy trying to maximize the point generating potential of your action which brings us to the second point that we think is absolutely essential to a euro game victory points how many times can we say point before it means nothing oh yeah (laughs) but yeah so this idea that victory points as the medium by which you win a game Mm -hmm. is completely essential to euros so in a lot of other contexts you might have something like uh if you are the first to control all of the territory you win or if you meet some arbitrary condition you win in euro games there's none of that everybody plays the game to the end whatever the end state might be whatever Mm -hmm. event triggers it everybody plays the game to the end and then points are calculated yep so you can be the one to trigger the end game but you won't necessarily be the one to win. Triggering might even give you an advantage, but it doesn't mean you win. Exactly. And uh, this, you know, this can be done in different ways. It could be just a point track. It could be like, you know, when someone takes the last victory point from a pool, uh, there are a lot of different ways that this can be implemented. But in general, like it's the victory points. It's the fact that you are calculating these things at the end of the game and that it is a numerical value pretty much that gives you the win. Right. And finally, the absolutely essential component of what we think a Euro game is, is resource management. And this is really the one that's going to sort of finally draw the line between, Mm -hmm. you know, because if you just look at action economy and victory points, well, you can say, well, wait a minute, tech builders are that. Yeah. That's for a later episode. Resource management is the the kicker. That's the third thing. You're working through resources to get the things done that you need. You have to pay for your actions or you have to pay for uh, whatever it is that's getting you your victory points. You have to find a way to manage scarce resources with scarce actions mm-hmm. to maximize your victory points. Exactly. And, you know, the resources can be very present on the board right. for your games. Like, 
cube pushers as a, a term that's thrown out around sometimes about euro games where it's just like you're taking cubes from here and here and putting them somewhere else to like get the different things and all that kind of stuff pay for things uh getting different resources uh through the different actions in in general the resources power your strategy yeah exactly and i think that's that brings us into some of the other things that many euros have but i don't think are necessary for euros so it's like that you can definitely find some euro games that don't have these things and the first one is specialization in most euro games you are pretty much trying to build a strategy where you have a goal in mind and you're trying to get there and you're trying to tailor the different things that you can change about the way that you are working in order to get to that point so this could mean by acquiring different things to put in your in your area that give you bonuses for taking certain actions or getting certain actions that you need from a deck or working on getting different kinds of advantages when doing certain actions in order to do what you want to do. Right. So this idea of specialization, I think it most commonly takes the form of what a lot of people refer to as engine building. Yeah. So this idea that you have a limited set of actions that you can perform and a lot of the things that you can do in the game will give you upgrades to performing specific ones of those actions. That's a pretty common form of specializing in one thing or another. Yeah. But you do also see specialization come in perhaps a different format i'm thinking with a game like whistle stop mm -hmm. which we've described as a euro where you might look at specialization as saying i'm going to use this medium of the board to build myself a path that i'm really dedicated to following mm -hmm. um, or i'm going to focus on stocks and not really care about getting uh, my um my trains to the very end to get the end game victory points right you're not increasing your capability with any of those things you're just choosing to focus on it yeah exactly and that really leads into the fact that most euro games especially if they're well done have <laughs> Ooh, judgment call i mean isn't that one of the things that we call out on no game is perfect whenever they don't have multiple paths to victory touche so i think euro games if they're well done have multiple paths to victory so you know, one person whistle stop for an example. One person can uh, can work on stocks. Another person can can go through and just try to rush the end and get the points at the at the very end of the board. In brew crafters, uh, you can have someone who is focusing on brewing the really really expensive beers that take a long time to brew, but are really really high in points, versus someone else who is you know, brewing as many beers as they can, just like trying to build something to like, you know, pump out as much as possible and win by a quantity. So these kinds of like different ways of winning, I think are very iconic for Euros. And also, I mean, just exemplify the, the other ones, the specialization, the uh, the victory points, and that they, they're how you win. Yeah, exactly. Having multiple ways to get at the same goal, mm -hmm. very, very common in Euros. Not universal though. Yep. Uh, another thing that we see a lot, but uh, isn't necessarily indicative of the term, is low player interaction, especially mm -hmm. compared to other games. Euros typically focus on you're doing a thing and you're trying to do it really well, because doing it really well will get you the most points. You have a very limited ability to interact with other players, whether that's positive interaction like trading or negative interaction like uh, blocking or outright attacking. Those are relatively uncommon. I would say that 
in most Euro games, the most direct player interaction that you get is preventing someone from taking the action that they want to do. Yep. There are exceptions. So I'm thinking particularly of Scythe. Yeah. Definitely, you know, you're managing your resources. You've got your your multiple victory point scoring conditions that you're working towards. And obviously you've got a limited number of actions per turn. But because of the territory management aspect, because of the mechs that you're moving around and the workers that you can literally like force out of the territory, yeah. you do have relatively high amounts of player interaction for what we might consider a Euro. Yep, exactly. So I think one of the, the misconceptions that um, that I almost want to break with this is that Euros are mid to heavy weight games. And yes, many Euros are, but I don't think that that is a defining factor of a Euro game. Because I think that a lot of uh, there are games that fit into these categories that are not heavyweight games. I think one of the ones that I would call out is Century Spice Road. Mm-hmm. You, you have your resource management. You're you know you're getting the uh, all the different spices and or gems depending on your edition, and you're using them in order to buy different things, and both for victory points as well as for uh, additional actions. So you've got your engine building. You've, you've got your action economy in there, and so. It has all of the main components of it, but it's a very light game. It's a game that you can play in 30 minutes, but it's pretty light. Additionally, there are also a lot of games that are really heavy that I would not consider Euros. Something like Twilight Imperium 3. (laughs) Any of the coin games. Right. Like, these are some of the heaviest games I know, and they are not Euros. They are 100% not Euros. Right. Overall, I think... This is probably a theme that's going to reemerge as we continue this series is this idea of breaking descriptions of games into classes, essentially. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about weight, that needs to be one descriptor. Yeah. You know, you talk about medium weight, heavyweight, these sorts of things. And we can get into what that means because a lot of people have a lot of trouble with, okay, well, what does that mean? Yeah. But it is its own category of descriptor mm-hmm. as opposed to what I would even call category of game mm-hmm. which is sort of these macro level distinctions of what is a euro what is an amerithrash which we'll talk yeah. about later as well and then even further than that you subdivide into mechanics mm-hmm. what are the sort of mechanics of the game that define those categories so i think moving forward this is something that we actually talked about wanting to do is move away not just from the term euro because Goodness knows, after talking about all of this, we were like, oh yeah. my God, every, what, ah. Yeah. But also towards a more precise language when we talk about games. So mm-hmm. I, I actually do want to commit right now to saying that when I describe a game, I'm going to break it up into these component parts. Yep. I'm going to describe the mechanics of it. I'm going to describe the weight separately from that. I'm going to describe the theme separately from all of that. And to me, that's more valuable than simply saying, oh, that's a Euro and I expect that you understand what I mean. Exactly. At just that word. Because that's that's really inaccessible yeah. to I mean, particularly new people, but I don't think I'm new. Like, I've been yeah. playing board games for, like, 10 years. And, I mean, like, we had before this a discussion of just, like, wait, is Whistlestap a Euro game? And, right. like, you know, I had to convince Greg that it was, that kind of thing. But, like, it makes it really difficult. It makes it really hard to, like, say, like, this one phrase and be like, yeah, this is it. And then someone else is like, it doesn't have these mechanics that I expect from this game. Right. And yeah, there's something to be said for the sort of armchair, smoking jacket, teleological conversations about, oh, well, what is a Euro? 
you know, mm-hmm. and, and what purpose do these concepts serve? But really, at the end of the day, especially for us as hosts yeah. of this podcast, it's about communication. Yeah. And it's about how can we convey that message as simply as possible? And how can you, the listeners, make the most use out of that term? Exactly. So I hope that you guys got some value out of this this episode. Uh, I think, honestly, making it, we did. We got a lot. Oh, absolutely. uh, It helped us a lot, like just define uh, things that we look for in games. Going forward, hopefully this helps you understand some more of the things that are talked about in the industry. If you're new or even if you've been in it for a long time and going forward, it might make you understand uh, our podcast a little bit better. Hopefully so. And we're going to be tackling some of the other types of games, as we mentioned at the beginning, throughout the, the rest of this series. So... I hope you stay tuned to those that are going to be coming out in the coming months. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Dragon's Demise. We hope that you enjoyed it. Let us know what you think. Do you think that uh, we miss anything, any essential parts of Euro games? What are your definitions of a Euro game? Let us know on our Facebook page. We would love to have this discussion and talk about what our community thinks uh, a Euro game is and whether or not that term is even useful. As always, thank you very much to our patrons and all of our supporters. Our great worms who give every month are extremely appreciated. So thank you to Hunter, Meg, Casey, Carissa, and Sam. You all are awesome. Thank you so much. Also, over on Twitch, we have our third tier backer, one of our biggest fans, Adam Krasberg. Thank you so much for all of your support. Uh, if you are interested in supporting us in that way, check out our Patreon, check out our Twitch. Otherwise, be sure to join us next week for another episode of Dragon's Demise.